I phoned my sister. I'm stuck in the barn and there's a big cat outside. Can you come and do something? And she laughed at me. I just froze. Didn't want to move because I didn't want it coming towards me or anything. Something like that. You think, where the hell has that come from? Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to episode 85 of Big Cat Conversations. We're coming to you with this one in late October 2022, if you're listening on schedule. For this edition, we'll be talking with two different ex-police officers, both of whom worked for Warwickshire Police, and both of whom independently contacted the podcast about their past Big Cat experiences. It seemed we just had to do a show linking them together. So later we'll be talking to John, who was a dog handler and had a sighting in 2003. But first up is Bob. Bob was with Warwickshire Police from 1987 until 2017, and he's now retired, based in Leicestershire. He had an encounter with a big cat in 2005, but before that he had other experiences on the topic within the constabulary, so we've plenty to chat about. So Bob, thanks for coming on the show and welcome. Hi Rick, thanks for having me. Before we get going on to big cats, can we just know a bit about your background and your different career roles within Warwickshire Police? Mostly, I suppose my career was firearms, traffic, search, and out of all the vehicles we drove or rode, I preferred motorcycles. So a lot of the time when I was on traffic, I was on a bike. I was also a firearms tactical advisor, a VIP protection officer. So I had some fairly interesting roles throughout my career. But never rural crime or wildlife liaison duties, which is where police officers these days might be asked to take an interest in big cat reports. So presumably there was somebody in the force at that time who dealt with those issues. Not at that time. There wasn't a rural crime team. You're probably only talking about the last, what, 10 years that rural crime teams have have come about, probably even later than that in Warwickshire. The wildlife protection officers, again, probably only about 10 years ago. For the first part of my service, your CBO, your community beat officer that was based in a rural area would look after everything in that rural area. So that included poaching, hare coursing, such like if any animals went missing, then that Bobby would deal with it. So they had to be a jack of all trades. Exactly, yeah. So you became exposed to the subject when you got asked to follow up a report, is that right? Yeah, that's right. It was around about 1990, uh, to the best of my recollection. I was a PC on the shift at Bedworth, and my sergeant called me in, Big Joe Thompson. He was an intimidating guy that if he said jump, you'd certainly ask how high. So when he called me in and said, right, get yourself down to Featherbed Lane with your brook, some guys reported the fact that a big cat has wandered across in front of him. He didn't take it very seriously. So, you know, I did as I was told, jumped in the car and went down to Featherbed Lane in Withybrook. Um, Withybrook's a small village, got a central pub, village hall, and, and that's about it, really. Nice little stream running through it. At the back of Withybrook, there was a, a new development, barn conversions, basically. And split up into about four residences. They were very posh, very nice for the time. So I arrived there and spoke to a gentleman, very well-educated gentleman. 
um, I would say he was probably nothing on 60. He came out of the house with his three shelty dogs. And we walked down the featherbed lane away from the house. And I always remember what he said, his exact words. He said, I was walking my three dogs down here. And uh, out of that gate over there, a large cat appeared and walked across the road in front of us. And I thought to myself, my, what a magnificent beast. Those were his exact words. And then he followed up by saying, and then I realised that this beast was bigger than my three dogs put together. He continued to tell me that the cat then just looked at him and the dogs, dismissed them, casually walked across the road, through another open gateway and into a field and gone. So that's the story that I took back to my sergeant. And I expected him to say, what a load of rubbish. Next job. What he actually said was, right, I want you to interrogate the commanding patrol and I want to know all the reportings, possible sightings of big cats over the last 10 years in Warwickshire. So again, you know, if you said that's what you're going to do, that's what you did. So I set about that over the course of the next week or so. Every, you know, spare minute I had was interrogating our command and control, printing off the incidents, and I soon built up quite a folder of incidents. Somewhere along the line, this is pre-internet now, somewhere along the line I came by a photocopy of a, a, a photograph of a cat walking past a stile in a field. They say photographs don't lie. The cat, if it was right, the cat was bigger than the stile. You know, it was, it was quite a big beast. So I had that in the folder, a rook of incidents that I printed off. Another one that really springs to mind is um, a lady in Southam. It must have been washing day. Um, she got a washing line strung from the house to the tree down the garden, as most people did. She wandered out into the garden with a washing basket and started pegging the washing out, starting from the house, working towards the tree. And when she got towards the tree, she's just about to peg some washing out, looks up, and there's a bough of a tree with a dirty, great big black cat just slumped over the brow with its, with its legs dangling down, just staring at her. So she screamed and ran back in the house. And um, at that time, Warwickshire Police did have a helicopter. We used to call it the strimmer. It was a little bubble-shaped device that would take two people, and if you were lucky with a good run-up and headwind, it would just about clear the hedge at the um, headquarters field and take off. <laughs> so that was scrambled. Of course, didn't spot anything, didn't see anything. That was pre-thermal imaging or anything like that. It shows that was taken seriously, though, doesn't it? It was taken seriously, yeah, because the woman was hysterical when she phoned up. Um. Now, somehow, way, shape or form, I came by the name of a chap called Quentin Rose. I contacted Quentin Rose and said, look, I've, I've been asked to investigate sightings of big cats in Warwickshire. I'm told you're the man to speak to. What, what can you tell me? Is there anything, you know, that I should know? And I must have been on the phone for an hour to him. And I even made some notes because he gave me a list of animals that he was licensed to. I think it was used at a padded foot snare or something like that he actually adapted and patented with his father a type of uh, humane foot snare which he wanted to deploy to catch big cats he unfortunately died in 2002 i've mentioned this on the podcast previously a very um, tragic case of, of sepsis developing rapidly in hospital and not being spotted in time and when they did spot it it was too late and he, he then unfortunately died 
he was liaising with police, including obviously your constabulary and several others, from at least the mid-90s, if not a little bit earlier, and up yeah. to 2002 when he died. And his, his files show that were passed on to me by his father that he was actually going to be contracted. So he was going to be employed, con- contractually employed by a couple of constabularies, and it never happened because unfortunately he died. But he, he certainly did feel... This is where people may disagree with him, but he was going to try to follow up reports that different constabularies gave him and set those humane traps with landowner permission if he got it. Yeah, yeah. He, he did mention that he, he was the only person licensed to use it, so he must have been fairly well down the line at that stage and with getting permission and, and the agent of other forces then. Yeah, incidentally, I don't know whether he told you, but he did do that with agreement from the then Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. His files clearly state that, they clearly show that uh, MAF and police forces they were in touch with were all in with this. So there was a sort of official policy behind the scenes that uh, credible big cat reports could be followed up and he could set traps up when uh, all the sort of boxes were ticked for that. Yeah. Yes, like you say, he must have been fairly well down the line then when I spoke to him, I would think. I mean, some of the things he was telling me, he was was saying that the reason why we now see in the cats is because they're getting older. And, you know, as they get older, their eyesight fails, they lose teeth, they're not as fast, they've got a bit of arthritis, so they'll come out and hunt in the daytime. And he said, you know, they work as sort of a clock face system. And and he went on to explain that they would, for instance, start at 12 o'clock they would work that area and hunt that area until they'd depleted it of all the manageable prey, rabbits, pheasants, whatever they could get their, their, their paws on. And then they'd move around to one o'clock and they'd do the same there. And eventually they'd go all the way around the clock and come back to the same patch that they started on a couple of years later, by which time the stock had you know, increased again. There was more pheasants, rabbits, it's things like that. You know, I thought that was pretty fascinating really yes i think i think people would might have slight different tweaks on that kind of thinking obviously they've got to move around because if they stay resident in one place they deplete the um the food source and it um becomes alert to them so i I think different cats can move around their territories in different ways and different sort of intervals uh, so I i think that's a bit rigid thinking I mean, he clearly was a very credible guy and did his homework and was very thoughtful and was regarded as a very um, good, objective, solid worker on the topic. Did you, incidentally, ever have reports that you received or your colleagues received that you then relayed to him to follow up? Do you know? No, that was my one and only dealing with him. Oh, OK. Yeah. After that, not long after that, I got promoted. And after a short spell at bed, I moved on to Atherston, which was even more rural. And coincidentally, as I'll tell you later on, that's the area where I had my sighting. Yeah, OK. Can we just go back to your the one that you followed up and met the witness? How did you find the credibility of the plausibility of that guy? And what kind of cat did he describe? Can you go through the colour and size and everything? Yeah, yeah. Credibility, A1 witness. The guy was very well educated, well spoken. Why would he want to call up and you know tell me that? I was interview trained, so you, you tend to know when people are telling you porkies. Um, he wasn't lying, you know. He'd seen something and he he wanted to get it off his chest. And the cat he described was a large black cat, 
he described it as a, as a panther. Long, sleek body, long tail, small head, with a sort of a slow, methodical gait. He says, no way was it um, a domestic cat because he got three shelties. And he said, it was bigger than my three dogs put together. So that gives you an idea of the sort of size. It certainly wasn't, um, you know, Kitty from next door. And looking through the reports that you collated based on your the requests from your boss, what did you make of them? What did you, And what did you make of the topic? I was fascinated by the topic. I've always been a wildlife lover. From a very young age, I mean, my parents brought me the world of wildlife. And, you know, I'm always looking through the world of wildlife books. So I thought it was fascinating. I was fascinated by, or very interested, about how they possibly came to be in the wild. You know, after the Dangerous Wild Animals Act came in, and people were faced with either giving their their, their cats or, or whatever to a zoo. And if the zoos couldn't take them, then they had to be destroyed. Well, you know, if you've grown attached to something, the last thing you want to do is to see it put down. So I can quite understand how people would say, you know, give it a pat on the back, say, off you go, go and fetch me some rabbits and shut the door and don't come back. I take reports and, and plenty of other people do. And, and I would say 90% of them are credible and consistent. Looking through the reports your police force got, what, what would you say? I would say at that time, probably about the same. I did follow these reports up because obviously when you print an incident off, you've got the, the informant details, the address, the telephone number. So I did make quite a few phone calls and, and I was talking to normal people, normal educated people, people from all walks of life, people that were walking the dogs and, and had seen something. This lady that was hanging a washing out, you know, she lived in a nice area and, and she was hysterical. Why, why lie? Why put yourself in the spotlight? So I think there was too many people there wanting to be honest and that there was no need for them to do that. They could have thought, well, I'm not telling anybody about that. And who knows how many reports we could have had if, if other people had, you know, thought the same and come forward. Do you think you also didn't get some reports because people don't like admitting things to the police and don't want public bodies following things up necessarily and poking their nose in? I think there's quite a bit of that goes on as well. Possibly. I think it's more more the fact that people don't want to be made fun of. Rather than people poking the nose in, it, it's, but if I say, if I call the police and say I've seen a big cat and then, you know, the village bobby goes down the pub and tells the landlord, then the next time I go in the pub, everyone's going to be laughing at me. It's that sort of thing. Rather than the government poking the nose in or anything like that, I think it's just people feel a little bit, oh, I can't really tell people about that because nobody's going to believe me. And in terms of the ones that got reported, were you seeing consistency in the colours and size? Yeah, pretty much so, yeah. People weren't always close enough to give a, a very good description, but, you know, if they say it's a cat, but it was a, it was big, um, like the one that was walking next to the style, uh, I remember the report saying that the cat was very close to the style. It was a picture that was taken, so somebody got a wet film camera. And just shows you, the police had a record of it, and that's never seen the light of day. I've had police come to me at rural shows, police still on duty or police retired, and have said that they've seen footage within their constabulary that's held, but it's not very well logged. People have presented photographic information, but it's never got out. Police have just held it for information. So you saw one that you found very credible and it looked like a big black panther that could kill a deer, did it? Unfortunately, because it was a photocopy, and again, you're going back 30-odd years, photocopies weren't that brilliant. And how many times it had been photocopied, God only knows. 
Just shows you, though, that somebody did, you know, snap a picture, get a picture off. If people take images like that now, rather than go to the police, it's straight on YouTube. Yeah, straight on Facebook and things, yes. I think the police still do get reports, but not as many, perhaps, as they might have done. There are so many alternative reporting measures, including social media, these days. Mm. Yeah. In terms of background intelligence, you know, both directly and indirectly, did you guys pick anything up about illegal releases or dodgy goings-on or illegal trading in exotic animals to sort of reinforce you know, that this had a dubious background to the reasons for the cats being out? The only thing, it was picked up off command and control. I can't say exactly, but there was a local zoo that should have taken delivery of about, I think it was 10 jungle cats. I'm led to believe a jungle cat is just a a big, nasty, bad-tempered cat. About the size of a vixen, actually, the jungle cat, Felis Chouse. About the size of a... A vixen, yeah, they're a fox-sized cat. A vixen. Right. So they should have taken delivery of 10 of those. They either never arrived or they arrived and they escaped. They couldn't be accounted for on an inventory. 10 of them as well. 10, yeah. So, I mean, they could have been intercepted and, you know, whipped off somewhere else and stolen. Or they could have arrived and, you know, they had a bit of a badger digging under one of the fences and the cats got out. I don't know. I've seen and heard a jungle cat on the edge of Gloucestershire in the past. It's in my book and I've mentioned it on the podcast. Yeah, they are interesting. You know, they're the sort of thing which can crossbreed, probably make one of our ferals go a bit bigger as well. They'd be good rabbiters. They they're not big enough to kill a deer, but they'd be very good rabbiters. Fair bit bigger than a normal domestic cat. Yeah. When did the um, dangerous wild animals that come in? When were they all released? 1976. I mean, your intelligence then would have been written on the back of a fag bucket. It wasn't computerised. Your intelligence then went to a collator. The collator wrote it on a card, put it in a a Rolodex, uh, and that was it. And your collator then was your computer, if you like. He was your intelligence officer. So you can imagine 1976, 86, 96, 2006, even by the turn of the century, that collator will, will have retired. And William has got a lot of that. And and then when things did get put onto computers, I very much doubt whether anything like that would have been retro-loaded onto a, a, a system. So all, all that sort of intelligence would have gone a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Just going back to the reports that you got, did you get any impression of the reason why people were reporting Were most people reporting them just because they felt it was a public duty or did some people want something done about it? It was a sense of public duty, really. You know, um, people would phone, what if I'm walking my dog and something attacks my dog or I've got children playing out in the woods. It was fear, probably. You know, people had seen something that scared them and they thought, I don't want that there when I'm, you know, walking down the road or going to go and pick up the kids, you know, after school on, on one dark winter's night. So I would say fear made people report it. Did you, as a police officer, discuss it with colleagues? uh, And did you have any view on how awkward this was as a topic for the police and for anybody? At the time, it was a bit of a joke. You know, it's like little green men, UFOs. You discuss anything like that, a lot of people dismiss it, they laugh at you. So at the time, I suppose, as as a young PC, some of my older colleagues were sort of poking a bit of fun. But it was a job, you got to do it. And at the end of the day, I ended up, you know, quite a big folder. 
Now, I've heard this from other police officers that attitudes vary within the police force. Some people know that it's a serious topic and most informants, most witnesses are credible and plausible. But if you're not exposed to the subject, you wouldn't get that necessarily. And so you can have different views within the constabulary. Yeah, there are always going to be people that dismiss reports such as that. And I suppose really, as a Bobby, you've got to be suspicious to be successful, really. But then again, you know, in my case where... I collated the evidence, studied it, spoke to Quentin Rose, and I thought, well, yeah, this, I believe this guy has seen something. And we've got too many reports of normal members of the public to dismiss it. So in, in my mind, there was definitely something going on. We can get to your sighting. 2005, Bob, was it 2005? Yeah, 2005. I was on duty, Colesville Police Station, as a traffic skipper. Again, I was on a motorbike. A report came in at a nearby village called Piccadilly that was missing child. So some of my units were were dispatched to that. I jumped on the bike and set off. So I went from Colesville down through Shustock to Furnace End Crossroads. Now, at Furnace End Crossroads, I was going to continue straight across. And as I started to cross, on the right-hand side, there was a badger, an adult badger. And uh, I rode very slowly past it, having a good look, and it sat up on its hind legs. I thought, that's quite big, actually, isn't it? You know, when they, when they sit up and rear up like that. So um, I carried on, left the badger where it was. Got another what, couple of miles down the road, and I'm passing at a pub called the Horse and Jockey at Bentley. Now, Bentley, I think I mentioned to you before, one of my colleagues, uh, a guy called Tony Hayway that now runs Wolf Watch UK, he was a bobby. He lived in the woods at Bentley and he kept about half a dozen timber wolves in the woods in a compound. And so it was quite normal. You could walk past Bentley Woods in an evening. You could hear wolves howling. Quite eerie. But I was just coming up to the horse and jockey and about to turn left towards Baxterley to go on to Piccadilly. And uh, I picked up what I thought was a Labrador or something crossing the road in front of me with a sparkly collar, which, again, made me think it was a dog. So initially my thoughts were, what's that doing out this time of night? I got my uh, full beam on. I was riding BMW K1200 RS motorcycle, so it got fairly decent full beam. As I got closer to it, it was now across the road, and it had gone across the curb, and it was starting to go through through the hedge, make its way through the hedge. I'd got it lit up really well in, in the lights, and I thought, that's not a dog first thing I thought was the badger I'd just seen. So the badger sat up on the side of the road and I thought, that, that's quite big. This was four, four, five, six times the size of the badger, lengthwise, body-wise. It was big. It was black. It was shiny-coated. The legs were quite, I wouldn't say slim, but not like a dog's legs. They weren't, they weren't dog's legs, definitely. Between the front shoulders and the back legs, the back dipped slightly. But what really finished it off for me was the tail, because as it squeezed through a hole in the hedge, the tail was, was long, much longer than a Labrador's, and the tail dipped down to the floor, almost touching the floor, and then curled up again at the end. It was a cat's tail. This cat was no moggy. You know, it, it was a big cat, half as big again than a Labrador, than a good Labrador. Jet black, jet black. 
the hedge was small, but I didn't get much of a view of the hedge. By the time I got to it, it was already going through the hedge. And it just seemed to squeeze through really easily, just disappear. I looked at it and thought, oh, I had to carry on to the job. And when I got to Piccadilly, there was cars parked in the middle of the road. It's a very small village. Cars parked in the middle of the houses. And there's cats all over the place there. And I was riding around trying not to run over these cats thinking, it was some sort of bigger than that. Because I wouldn't be thinking about, you know, am I going to run this over? I'll be thinking about, is it going to knock me off my bike? So, yeah, I know what I saw. It was a cat. I would say it was a panther. Didn't see its eyes, but it was that sparkly colour. I thought it was a dog until I got closer up to it. And then obviously it wasn't a dog. The fact they had a collar on does beg a question, doesn't it, about whether it had been let out or recently released or whether somebody had it in a cat flap situation, which is alleged that does happen, that people let them out and they expect them to come back for the food and that sort of thing. Could you judge about its attitude and, and confidence? I would say it was definitely confident. It didn't even look at me. I don't remember seeing its eyes. Its eyes surely would have lit up in the, in the beam of the headlights. Walked straight across the road. It wasn't in a rush. It didn't run across the road. It walked across purposefully. It didn't know where it was going. It knew there was a hole in the edge there, and it just went straight through it. How far ahead of you was it? Initially, when I first spotted it and thought it was a dog, probably about 100 yards. By the time I got up to it and it was going through the hedge, 20 yards, if that, I went past it. Its tail was probably still going through the hedges. I sort of rolled by it. Very interesting you saw one with a collar. There's very, very few wearing a collar, but it does happen. It could have been a chain, I suppose. I don't know. It's picked up in the headlights because the rest of it was black and, and there was a definite, you know, shiny, sparkly collar. It could have been a chain. It could have been a leather collar with some stones in it or whatever. I, I don't know. Certainly the headlamps picked it up. Obviously suggesting that it was one that had been in captivity. Oh, definitely. It was first generation release or else it was heading back home for its food because somebody was letting it out systematically, which has been alleged that that goes on amazingly, even though I think that's high risk strategy if you do that, because they might suddenly get used to go feral and stay feral if you do that. Yeah. Did you have any other reports to the police force that backed that up in, in, the, in the local area independently at all? Around that time, there were some, there were another couple of reports. And I thought, oh, thinking about the clock face system, I did wonder whether it could have been the same thing. I wasn't in a position then to take those reports. My core responsibilities were people had been involved in nasty accidents and locking people up for drink driving and speeding and stuff. That's frustrating, isn't it, if you couldn't really get a handle on it? Most people, most cops, when they go in, they'll have a look at the command and control system, see what's happened in the you know the previous 24 hours, if there's been any burglaries or whatever. But you can narrow down the search, and if, if you're looking for burglaries or stolen vehicles, you're not necessarily going to pick something like that up because you haven't got time to scroll through all the jobs. Yeah, how frustrating. Yes, and how did that make you feel? I mean, it must have, um, well, you say, what was your reaction? What was your emotional response? Um, I thought, I've just seen a cat. <laughs> I've got to tell someone. I, I did tell the control room what I'd seen. You know, I didn't report it. Nobody took the mickey out of me at that stage. I just said what I'd seen. I can't say anything different. I, I suppose I felt privileged, really. You know, because after all those years where I was tasked to investigate all the sightings, I'd actually seen one myself. 
It's one of those wow moments. I'll always remember it. I can see the road now. I can see the badger. It's just one of those things um, imprinted in your mind. And of course, now it would be easier to, if you wanted to, it'd be easy to, to discuss with other people in modern ways and social media. But in those days, you couldn't really follow it up as a citizen, let alone as, a, as an officer, an officer not dealing with the subject. I suppose it would have got collated with all the other reports within the system, though, wouldn't it, in the police force? It would have been. It would have been. And, and no doubt, you know, the, the command and control systems come on leaps and bounds. And you could, you could go back 25 years now and you could pull up all the incidents. But again, you need a Freedom of Information Act request sending in for something like that. And you could look at any geographical clusters and independent things adding up. It's all auditable now. So if, if it's been reported, it's on there somewhere. Incidentally, was the missing child case sorted all right? Yes, yeah, yeah, it's sorted. Hiding around a friend's house or something from my best recollection, but um, I certainly wasn't in Piccadilly very long. We'd, we'd all resumed. Did go back the same way, but didn't see, didn't see the case. John, who's going to come on after you, did you know John? He must have been... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so did you know he'd had a sighting? I mean, he had it while he was handling his with his dog. Um, I, I don't want to sort of steal his thunder, but uh, he's coming up in a minute. But No, I didn't know at all. Okay. You'll learn when you listen back to this episode. Yeah. We ought to actually just, just touch on the Wolf Watch situation, because I went to a talk, must have been from your former colleague by Wolfwatch UK and it's an educational program about wolves isn't it but just having some that are in, in captive situations and using them as examples and it's a great way of learning all about wolves. He had premises in that part of Warwickshire at the time. Yes yeah he's in um, he's actually in Bentley Woods which was literally if I'd have gone another what 500 yards down the road Bentley Woods are on the right hand side so, yeah, it was more or less in the same place. I'm sure it got nothing to do with Tony because Tony had retired and moved away to his valley in Shrewsbury years now or something like that. He's got a valley now, literally. Oh, it's good. It's still going. You didn't look him up and ask him if, if he might be able to help explain anybody having or releasing a cat with a collar? No. And, you know, myself and my daughter went to see him and went to visit Wolfwatch, um, what, five, six years ago. Never even thought to bring it up, to be honest. But yeah, Tony's a, a, a smashing bloke, really knows his stuff about wolves, but I don't think cats was really his, his bag. I, I, couldn't have, I couldn't have seen Tony having a cat. No, so it was just total coincidence that that, that yeah. incident happened near where Wolfwatch UK used to be based, yeah. That's it, yeah. Yes, I had uh, a friend look me up who I was at uni with, actually, and she has a pack of huskies and she runs them in uh, edge of Thetford Forest area. And she looked me up and she said, Rick, I've seen you take big cat reports. She said, my huskies have just been bothered by something in the forest when I was running them. And I looked up and it was uh, definitely a big black panther. So yeah, just shows you even huskies are going to be bothered by something that different and potentially threatening to them. Yeah. So looking back on the subject now, Bob, um, and knowing that big cat reports still get still happen uh, frequently and routinely, what do you make of it? Are you surprised that we haven't made more progress on the, on the topic and you know, getting to grips with it and understanding it more? See, it's not going to be a police matter. If I see it like that, then the police would see it like that. They would say, well, it's nothing to do with us. Get the RSPCA to sort it out or DEFRA or, you know. Even though they get re- asked to to follow up reports yeah because you know we, 
we don't have police officers that are trackers. We haven't got teams of dogs that can go out and, you know, form a line through the woods and try and flush something out. And the police are really, really stretched. So what happens to the reports now? I've got a feeling they probably just go onto the system and, and that's it. A lot of crimes aren't investigated now. So if crimes aren't investigated, they're not going to have a chance to look at the reports of big cats. Unless somebody's actually attacked, then I can see that the police aren't going to do much about it at all. Even then, some attacks in the past have been alleged and maybe people don't even accept the big cat was the culprit. You know, sometimes people can use a subject as a scapegoat, can't they, or as a as a diversionary tactic. That is the other problem. You've got to prove what it was what you're alleging. Even then, what do you do? The animal could be well away and it's rare, isn't it? That that is the other good news, that it's rare that they sort of misbehave and become a nuisance and a threat to us. Yeah, I think generally that they'd they'd want to keep well away from us, you know, they keep out of our way. At the end of the day, man is still an apex predator himself. And we scare animals. And and most animals would rather walk away from an encounter than stand and fight, wouldn't they? Yes. In terms of what you received and what you looked at retrospectively when you were looking through the previous reports, you never saw any that were what you might call misbehaving, did you, that, that, that had alleged no. to have taken pet cats or pet dogs or threatening people? They were all just sightings, were they, as far as you could see? They were all just sightings. It's sort of a job in passing. I don't even know how many years ago it was, but there were reports somewhere in Warwickshire of some sheep being molested. And I believe one was up a tree, which was a bit unusual. But again, it wasn't my role. It's not my job to look at that. So it's just, oh, that's interesting. That goes back to, you know, when I was investigating the sightings of the big cats. And that's as far as I took it, really. I think this um, issue of the police not being equipped and resourced and trained Mm. and uh, with, with all the backup to handle the subject in the way that um, we might expect is very evident today. And I think police, uh, wildlife liaison officers and rural crime teams do their best to try and show interest. But I think it's very difficult for them to have the time and resources and the, and the know-how to really follow up seriously in, any issue. And luckily, in a way, it's very rare for there to be a credible, edgy encounter where you know they're needed you know that that those Mm. those are rare luckily although of course they do scramble helicopters don't they still police forces in different parts of the countries these days with thermal camera equipment of course yeah they've they've all got thermal imaging equipment and they've all got fantastic cameras they've all got infrared but again you know if you've got something that shows up then by the time you've made the call by the time you've scrambled air support by the time they've got there it could be miles away you know, and, and even with thermal, I use thermal imaging in the fields around me, you know, to see what, what's around. And if it's in really dense undergrowth, you still won't see it, you know, with the thermal imager. The other thing to bear in mind is wildlife liaison officers and rural crime teams, certainly the wildlife liaison officers, they've got another job. They'll, they'll spend 90% of their time doing something else, you know, locking somebody up for theft of cheese or going to a domestic. They have to make time to do that job that's bestowed upon them. I know from knowing wildlife liaison officers that they'd love to spend more time on the subject, but they can't. It's a capacity issue. Exactly, yeah. Finally, Bob, just looking at the topic, you know, as a citizen now, 
What's your attitude to big cats being reported and presumably naturalising under our nose without us knowing much? You know, what's your sort of personal emotional attitude about big cats living wild in Britain? I'm an animal lover. I would say if they were in the right place, then leave well alone. But farmers, defra, gamekeepers, the general public, the mere sight or sound of a big cat, it's going to send them into a frenzy. They're having problems trying to reintroduce beavers. and You know, there's some talk about maybe reintroducing wolves into the UK. And, and look at all the backlash you're getting from that. Personally, I'll just be careful where I walk my own dog. But the fact that they've established themselves, what do you make of that? And, and do you think it's good, bad, or, or do we not know? And should we be bothered about it? Or are you quietly pleased? Um, you know, Have you got a sort of personal reaction to the fact that they seem to have established themselves, albeit in presumably very low numbers, but they seem to be keeping their nose clean? Yeah, I'd, I'd say fair play to them. Get on with it. It doesn't worry me. But the general public, well, I think the general public aren't, aren't going to be too happy about it. Like you say, they're keeping the nose clean, then good luck to them. That's my thoughts. On uh, Quentin Rose's files, he was trying to follow up this guy. I think he was a landowner in Worcestershire, not, not Warwickshire, and he wanted to mm. set traps up. And it was very evident that you know, there was a good reason for asking this landowner if he could visit and follow up the reports. And this landowner, once he got wind of the fact that Quentin wanted to set traps up, he he obviously wasn't happy and didn't want that to happen. And so he just said, no, there are no big cats. His response was from the files, no, there are no big cats round here. I uh, don't know where you've got that from. And so he started all getting <laughs> denial to put let Quentin off the case. And he said, uh, and if there are, good luck to them. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting how I think if you get told about the fact there could be big cats around and you don't know much about it, you think, gosh, that's scary. But if you have seen one and you sort of know what their attitude is and how they can be so stealthy, can be different. You know, it's, it's sort of in abstract and real. You can have a different view, can't you, depending on how it's affected you. But that's part of the dilemma of the subject, isn't it? Yes. I love birds of prey. We've got a lot of buzzards around here, but the red kites are starting to move across. And they're, they're beautiful birds. Love them. But I know the, the attitude of some of the, some of the villagers is like, well, we don't, don't want them around here. And there have been several shot and poisoned locally. And you think, why? They're... So if, if they're not going to tolerate something as beautiful as a red kite that essentially eats carrion, but why would we hunt things and destroy things to, to oblivion? I, I don't know. And I'd hate it. people are going to start going out looking for cats with shotguns and God knows what. It's... Although it's very difficult to do that, I think, because they're, you know, they're so stealthy, their hearing is so good, their movement is so good. They no doubt have been shot in the past and people occasionally had the opportunity and taken it. But um, not everybody has the same attitude about potentially popping one off anyway. Oh, good. Glad to hear it. Thank you ever so much, Bob. Always useful to hear from ex-police officers and I hope we can hear some in the future. Obviously, John's coming up. Look forward to hearing what John's got to say. My sighting was reported to the control room on the night. and um, Never heard any more about it. And obviously, if John did report it, it just got swallowed up in the system, just the same as mine, I suppose. Hence, I didn't know that John had seen one, and he wouldn't have known that I'd seen one. Very interesting. Well, it's good, good we can uh, put you together now all these years later. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much, Bob, for your time and input. 
Keep in touch if you hear anything from Leicestershire. And thank you very much for your time and for coming on Big Cat Conversations. Thanks for listening. Next up is John as a second ex-Warwickshire police guest. John's encounter was in 2003, so we'll learn about that. And John was a dog handler as a key part of his role in the police. And that is in fact entirely relevant in the incident, as we'll hear. John is now based in Cornwall and he maintains the dog handling interest because he's an operational dog handler for Cornwall Search Dogs. And he's agreed to tell us a bit about that as a short bonus later on. John, thanks for joining us and welcome. Thank you. Now, nice to hear from somebody who's a dog handler. And I guess we can all surmise what sort of things a dog handler and the dogs forming the task get up to. But can you tell us the main task the dogs perform in that role? Yeah. During my time as a police dog handler, I served with two general purpose German Shepherd dogs called Jack and Russ, respectively, and also a Belgian Malinois, also called Jack. Russ also went on to become a firearm support dog with me. Our main duties were tracking for people, both criminals and vulnerable missing people, searching for property, building searches for people, search to, contact for armed criminals, and crowd control. When I was on the dog section in Warwickshire, I was basically a dog handler, and that was my core role. Ten years I did. What was the most memorable incident where the dog was sort of heroic we were awarded a uh, a national award for bravery a few years ago when my dog went to a burglary at rugby at a rugby school and we tracked from the school uh, probably about a mile or so from the the scene across fields and uh, fences and stuff like that and eventually found the perpetrator um, or alleged perpetrator, hiding in a river. I sent my dog, this is, this is like at three o'clock in the morning, so it's pitch black. Um, I sent my dog in to find the man, and he did find the man. And I heard the dog yelp with pain, and then I heard the person yelp with pain. And so I jumped into, I jumped into the river and realized that what was facing me was like a scene out of David Attenborough's crocodile scene where a crocodile had leapt up and grabbed this villain and was pulling him down the river towards me. Basically, the man had uh, tried to stab the dog, caused lacerations on his muzzle. So obviously, I was in the river and I was very concerned for my safety, my dog's safety, and also the, the alleged perpetrator's safety. So I managed to disengage the dog, get the man out onto the bank and arrest him. Um, so that was probably one of the most memorable things I'd done, really. You were a big hero along with the dog. Amazing. Well, we were just doing our job, as they say. I know that sounds all cliche, but at the time, you just don't think any more of it. You just do what you got to do. We we received a, an award from um, the Association of Chief Police Officers for um, highly commended for that. So I was very, very pleased with that. He had a sharp knife, did he, that he was actually wielding? Yes, Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, he had a knife and he, he managed to cut the dog's muzzle. Um, that's what the dog was yelping in pain. And then the dog disarmed him in the only way he knows how, uh, with 42 sharp teeth. <laughs> and um, he desisted any, any struggling after that. He decided that, you know, the dog was more than a match for him. 
Yeah. The, so the guy was actually sort of squatting down on the in the riverside, was he, or sort of semi-swimming? He jumped into the river, ran alongside the riverbank, and was hiding under a, like a tree. Okay. Something like that. And my dog had gone in because I knew by the way the dog was actually behaving that this person was actually in the vicinity. We call it a proximity indicator. By the way, the dog's body um, language, it conveys to us, the handler, that there is a person in the vicinity. That is relevant, actually, for what we talk about um, later on. And so I, take, I took the lead off the dog, sent, issued a challenge, which gives the criminal time to give up. Because basically you're saying if you do not you know, come out, you're going to be found by a police dog. And it's not the best of experiences. <laughs> and then the dog, the dog went in and started this barking, then a yelp, and then suddenly this scream of the man as the dog sunk his teeth into him. And the dog was literally pulling this bloke like upstream, if you like, towards me. And the guy was like spread-eagled, like a star, uh, being pulled up the river. And it just reminded me always of these alligators lying in wait for gazelle when they swim across the the river, the mighty Zambezi or something, and the crocodile suddenly leaps and drags this this gazelle. I thought, I, yeah, I almost felt sorry for the poor chap, really, but still, there you go. Hopefully he was the culprit. He was the culprit. He got sent to prison. So uh, that was good. Is it rare for the dogs to get injured? Presumably, you know, it is, an, it is a hazard. They, they have a hazardous role. It is a hazard. In my time, in my career, very rarely did dogs get injured. Generally speaking, when people are faced with dogs, they will generally think that they better give up as discretion is a better part of valour in their case type of thing. Because we used to do it with armed people as well. We'd search contact to armed people and they would, they would stop because they knew that if something happened to the dog, then it gave the game away anyway and they would be arrested anyway. So they didn't say there'd be much point about it. There is obviously always an exception, and I suspect now that there are more dogs are um, injured because they have that new, is it Finn's law, that they came out with, uh, with a police dog. But yeah, that was the only real injury that my dog received in all those years of, of running police dogs. Very interesting. What a great uh, distraction straight away. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get back to dog handling and your, your experience with it sort yes. of, um, uh, now in Cornwall a bit later. But um, before we get on to the big cat incident that you and, and your accompanying dog had in Warwickshire, before that case, were you aware of big cat sightings on a sort of national level? And were you aware that within the police force, big cats sometimes got reported to your colleagues? Well, I had been aware of such sightings of, of large cats, but most notably enduring Beast of Bodmin, um, which seems to be like on a, on a par with the, uh, the Loch Ness Monster. But I'd never actually seen any sightings myself. And I'd also heard of anecdotal stories of other non-Indigenous species in the UK, such as wallabies, wild boy, parrots, that sort of thing. But again, I've never in my own experience, seen such a, a spectacle, and I've never met anybody that had ever come across such an experience, to be fair. Well, if we can get into the, the case itself, because obviously you weren't investigating a big cat report, but one turned up when you were doing your job, you know, investigating a, a case. Um, so if you can tell us about the case and then what happened when the cat turned up. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I was tasked to go to a crashed, stolen vehicle around about 2003, month I cannot remember at all. I got a feeling it wasn't cold because I remember I was only wearing my black overalls and stuff like that. So it wasn't particularly cold. The location was Trinity Road, Piccadilly in Kingsbury, which is North Warwickshire. There's a railway bridge that spans the road there. So that gives you some sort of suggestion of the actual location. It was in the early hours of the morning, as I say. The location was rural fields and hedges, and it was quite dark. When I arrived there, I saw the, um, the crashed vehicle and no, no other police officer was there. They'd all gone to have a, a look around the area, as, as is often the case, leaving the dog handlers to get on with it himself. So I, dog handlers always work alone human-wise, with their dog. So I attempted to pick up a trail from this stolen vehicle, which entails putting a trailing harness on the dog and then a long trailing line, which is about a 30-foot line. So you then cast around with the dog. This is Russ, the German shepherd. Casting meaning that you, you're walking around the, the vehicle in a circular motion, trying to find the scent that has come away from the vehicle. If you can imagine that the vehicle was the hub of a wheel and that you are trying to find the spokes leading away, which is the, the fresh scent. And I was suddenly very, very aware that my dog had started to give some sort of a proximity indicator that something was there or somebody was there. He started to become highly excited to the point of being almost uncontrollable. Like he's a 45-kilogram German shepherd in the prime of his life. So I looked up at the focus of this excitement because he'd focused to the left-hand side of me, and I just saw this largest, what I remember describing as a panther, walking casually in front of us from our left-hand side. And I would suggest that this was a distance of maybe 50 feet as the tracking line was a mere 30 feet, and I guessed it wasn't quite a double that. And the stunning thing was I stopped because I just thought that was the best thing to do. And the animal, the panther, never took its eyes off us. And it just looked basically to his right as he was passing in front of us and passed by us in what I thought at the time was just disdain. It showed no fear or alarm and just disappeared up like a hedge embankment and, and disappeared, never to be seen again. It was incredible. It really was. How did the dog's behaviour change at all? Well, um, he literally, as I say, he became almost uncontrollable. He was jumping, lunging, barking and growling. And I thought he would probably protect me and sense danger as he was in 100% protective mode upon sighting the panther. And the thing was, as I say, Russ had sensed this creature long before it had emerged into our field of vision, becoming animated with the proximity indicators alerting me. It's the body language of the dog saying, look, Dad, there's something here that shouldn't be. I want you to know about it because I'm going to bark at it in a minute. Because I, I remember thinking, interestingly enough, that we had actually found the person who had hidden up after crashing the car, because that was quite normal, that people would crash cars, they'd jump out, hear the sirens coming and think, well, blow me, I'm going to hide in this area of hedge or something, and they won't find me. 
until the dog comes along and then the dog does. So so normally speaking, the dog's indication on a hidden person would be this body language change and barking, but it was always controlled. But this was one notch above, almost as if the dog had come across something that he was not familiar with. He might even have been scared. I know I was certainly wary, you know. He was on a leash. He was he was uh, restrained and, and linked to you, was he, at the time? Yeah, sure. He was on a 30-foot trading line, uh, if you think a very long lead. And uh, he, around his waist and neck, he got like a, a, a tracking harness, which is literally like the harnesses you see people wearing nowadays, like the Julius K-9 and stuff like that. So he was he was well strapped in, if you like, and he was well in control. He wasn't about to attack this uh, this panther, but thank goodness that that never ever happened because it was a worry at the time. Yeah, and had he not been restrained, what do you think he might have done? Is it difficult to guess, or do you think he might have actually decided to advance at it? I think, without doubt, that he would have advanced. Whether, as he got closer, whether he would have attacked the panther, I cannot say. But there was no hesitation in the dog standing his ground and saying, you're not coming anywhere near me, mate. I will have you. And he was he was alert, he was tense, and he was barking and, and going for it, basically, as, as dogs do. You know, And the fright or flight situation comes in. Well, he definitely wasn't flighting. Um, but the panther wasn't fighting either. The panther just looked at him as if to say, yeah, bring it on, boy. And um, off he wandered. Because the, the panther just did not actually show any fear at all. It was the most surreal incident I've ever, or surreal experience I've ever had, to be perfectly honest, with a wild animal. Presumably, John, I mean, reflecting on it, it was just total coincidence, presumably. I mean, it just happened to be walking across in sight and close to you at the time you were there. It presumably hadn't been flushed out by a car noise. The car crash was, what, you know, several minutes or an hour before this this panther turned up. So it probably wasn't flushed out by the noise of a car accident. Absolutely. I was a, a county resource, so I would probably be anywhere within North Warwickshire or even Warwickshire. It would probably take me some time to get there, but I cannot remember the detail like that. But no, purely and simply, and the dog didn't flush him out either, because if the dog had have flushed it out, it would be running or it would be going the opposite way. To my mind, and I'm not a panther expert, but that, to my mind, with natural instinct of animals, they will either stand their ground or they'll, they'll leg it. And this one was definitely doing neither. It was on a course in front of us. And the drama that was unfolding before the panther, i.e. my dog barking, was not going to alter his situation at all or his demeanor. He was just a confident, he was just a confident guy going for a walk. And um, it was incredible, absolutely incredible. So he wasn't in stalking mode. He was just purposefully walking from A to B and uh, in your line of vision. And, and you were a sort of so what sort of part of the course of events. Absolutely. It moved with a certain grace, not unlike a domestic cat, actually, but obviously bigger than a domestic cat. And it was just sort of a muscly, fluid, purposeful motion. And it literally didn't jump away or increase its gait or anything like that. 
it just seemed to me an incredibly confident panther in charge of the situation. That's how I felt like anyway. Size-wise and colour and and shoulder blades and leg thickness, anything like that if you could uh, describe to us? Yeah, it seemed to be longer than my German Shepherd, but lower to the ground with this muscled movement, if, if that makes sense, with a longer tail. But I don't think the tail was as long as the body. As I say, it was it was a lighter shade of a lighter shade of dark. If that brown, maybe does that make sense? In fact, we were discussing this uh, just, just so listeners know. I mean, before we turned the mics on, I was um, quizzing you about this sort of interesting coloration that it wasn't quite jet black, but it was sort of dark and, and probably with a brownie, slight brownie hue. And so you did do a tell us about your Google search on on black leopards and, and what you thought. Indeed, I, I googled it up and. It definitely now, looking at it, because I say I'm, I'm not an expert on black leopards or panthers or any wild cat, the, that looks in profile or the side part of it, what I saw, a black leopard, absolutely. And scrolling down, you can, I can see various colorings when they're picked up by light or infrared or something like that. And yeah, that would fit. That would absolutely fit. And also the profile of them, very, very... um, Mine seemed to be a little bit closer to the ground, as though it was almost like slinking by, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you had enough light. You had enough light, John, to see it in. Yeah, certainly. We we used to work without torches, or I used to work without torches. But you get used to the dark, and it's never, ever as dark as you think it is. And I, I, I remember thinking that it moved with a certain grace that has always stayed with me to this very day. It wasn't the plot of a dog that's a bit gambly and a bit, you know, ungainly. This had a certain beautiful grace to it. And it was really, in the seconds that I saw it, quite a, quite a beautiful experience, really. Yeah. And so difficult question, I think, difficult for you to, to know fully, but... If somebody had said, oh, that was freshly released out of captivity, or somebody had said, no, it was wild and knew its place and properly confident, what would you say? There was no suggestion it was captive due to the fact that I could see no collar on it or no ear tags on it. It just seemed confident. I've only ever seen these animals in zoos, and they just seem to be pacing stressed, um, stressed creatures you know, just by its pacing and its walk and its, its mannerisms. But this one, as I said before, was just supremely confident, as if it was king of the jungle, if you like, king of Piccadilly. It was a sublime experience, really. I can't honestly say as to whether it had been in captivity for long or it had been in the wild for long. I, I just cannot say, because I don't have the experience. Okay. Yeah, and so there was no eye shine, because often in the dark, if people got a torch or some illumination, they see eye shine, and that can be very impressive, because you know, they can be lit up like lanterns in the reflectivity. Yeah. But, so you didn't get no. that. You, did you see its eyes at all? I did see its eyes, because it looked straight at us, but because we didn't have a torch, I don't remember particularly the eyes shining back at us. I'm sort of experienced that with searching for dogs, um, which we can go on to later, and um, that is the very same thing. But generally, I've always found that that is if they if you catch them in the illumination of your torch or something like that. But I don't remember that bit at all. No. Okay. 
one of their favourite prey items is deer. So this one was big enough and had the sort of capabilities of uh, predating a deer, no problem then? Oh, yes, most definitely. And I believe there, is, there are monk jack up there and uh, Chinese water deer, stuff like that. I mean, I've no idea what their territory is, but just a few miles up the road is Coles Hill and Packington and those sort of areas which have got deer parks. So I guess not a problem. Not a problem at all. Good stuff, yeah. And how interesting that you knew Bob as sort of colleagues in the in the same police force, but you didn't know each other had had a sighting. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, one of the surprises that I did have was after watching the cat disappear, I terminated the trail for safety reasons and reported my experience back to the control room. And I later informed our force wildlife liaison officer he didn't get back to me for a few days because I thought, you know what, I'm going to tell somebody I've just seen this panther in the middle of Warwickshire. I'm going to be uh, absolutely famous, you know, man sees panther <laughs> in the middle of night. And he didn't get back to me for about a week. And when he f- I rang him up and said, you know, hang on, Craig, I just saw this panther. And he sort of said, yeah. And, <laughs> and I said, really? He said, oh, yeah, they're about. Oh, thank you for telling me. <laughs> Bob was saying that you know not all colleagues um, are so willing to think it could be true. You can understand it. You know, if people have no background and no context to it, they some people do think it's a bit weird. Did you get some scoffing amongst colleagues, or some people who thought it was hard to believe? No, I don't think I did. Actually, um, I think they came to the conclusion that probably these animals are out there. Um, because, you know, when the Dangerous Animals Act came in and this, that, and the other, and also I was told whether it's true or no, that people who used to keep these sort of animals with the the correct permits and stuff, if they did escape, they would like to keep it quiet because they would have their licenses revoked and stuff like this. So I, I never actually found anybody that was doubting, amazed more than doubt, to be perfectly honest that they'd met someone who'd actually um, had actually seen one, you know, especially at such close proximity. Yes, I suppose you also had the benefit, the fact that a dog reacted in the way it did with you to really yeah. reinforce it helped your case as well. Because, I mean, people can doubt a person's sighting, can't they? But I think if, if a dog, yes. especially a dog as tuned to happenings as, as the dog you are with, you know, you're, not, you're hardly going to challenge the dog's verdict, are you? No, no. My dog's never told lies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Incidentally, did they solve that case? Did they get the culprit on that case? I believe not, no, because I was not willing to carry on with the panther on the prowl, and he might have been hungry. So I, you know, for health and safety reasons, for the safety of my myself and my my crewmate, Russ, I pulled the idea because I thought I wasn't going any further. I mean, more than likely, the panther would have been miles away, but I just wasn't going to risk it, really. The panther protected the culprit in a way. Yes, yes, absolutely. I just hope that the panther hadn't been stolen by the perpetrator and escaped when the perpetrator crashed it, you know. It'd be a real, like a pink panther scenario, not a black panther scenario, really. Yeah, you should have checked the back of the vehicle for a, for a big sort of metal crate in it. That's right, yeah, and a few parrots and a, and a dingo. Good stuff. Before we uh, get on to Cornwall search dogs, Reflecting on the police setup, have you got a sort of view on how geared up the police are or not for for taking big cat reports and following up properly? 
Well, I, I have been retired for a number of years now, but my take on it would be probably that with the knowledge required to deal with such animals, that any incident should be dealt with by specialists in this field. But with the police providing management and control and intelligence, especially towards public safety, and, and ultimately intervention, should firearms response be required, sadly. Yeah, sure. And, but of course, police do have on their books people who are firearms trained for dangerous animals, don't they? Yes, absolutely. They're sort of contracted in, aren't they, as necessary, once in a while? A lot of the ARVs will do the job, but because of the continuing sort of um, demand on the police nowadays, I would think it would be very low on their list of priorities to actually respond to. It would probably be a, a panda car going around the field saying no trace on arrival, you know, no further sightings, it would be filed. I can understand why it is a difficult area to police, because I guess that it's not that frequent in this country, but I don't know that for certain. But that, that would be my take on it. The police take control of the situation and arrange stuff like that, you know. Well, I think it's a bit like your situation. You know, That one went off, melted away into the night. Well, you're not going to catch up with a big cat in Britain unless no. you've got some special capability. That's the difficulty the police face. And But I think luckily it's rare, very rare for a cat to be demonstrably misbehaving, as it were, you know, causing a risk and a threat, which is a huge relief, really, for for the animal's sake and for our sake. So, and, and means the police aren't often required. They are very limited in what they can do, unfortunately. For sure, I, I guess it also is perception on the general public as well, because they will have the the word "pan for lion, tiger" will come through, and it will be possibly panic. Whereas I, my experience demonstrated that actually, although I perceived danger and my dog perceived danger, I possibly, from the panther's point of view, wasn't in any danger as long as I didn't interfere with his, his manner of business. I just let him go on without any impedance on my part. Then ne'er the twain shall meet. And I think that's pretty much what happened that night. Or that morning. Yeah, and I think that's pretty common, basically. If you don't pick a fight, I think people know it's in their best interest not to pick a fight. For sure, for sure. I think that's true. Yeah, good stuff. Well, if we can get on to a final bit of discussion with, with your sort of experience with rescue dogs in Cornwall. And I'd like to steer it back in the end to if dogs could play a role in helping us track big cats so to get your view on scat detection dogs because there's two roles that dogs can play in tracking these big cats they can follow the scent as groups of dogs as hounds doing search for mountain lions in, in america like they do yeah or you can actually train them to know the scent of a of a dropping of a, of a scat from a mountain lion yeah. or a leopard whatever the target species is and reward them for finding that scat in the wild and in fact i got my black labrador dog duke with that intended purpose 
And I was going to train him as a scat detection dog, but I just realised that the commitment and time of having sort of frozen scat, getting leopard scat and, and mountain lion scat from a zoo, which even then they'd be breaking the rules to pass it over, and then keeping oh, it, okay. yeah, and then keeping it in uh, in a little sort of mini freezer in the garage and getting it out to do him sort of a couple of times, reinforce the training and the scenting of it every week would, was quite an onerous, you know, part of my. My routine which I was going to have difficulty to to keep up and then he'd have to want to be doing it for, for real sometimes which would be great because yeah. that's what you want them to do but if that can be done I think that would be great because there'll be times when they could be deployed and they could find the scat it might help you find the route a cat's taken you could get DNA results from finding the right dropping and of course you reward the dog with food or a ball play depending what motivates that's right yeah for that so if we can have your view on that in a minute but on to Cornwall and your role with um, the search dogs in Cornwall. What sort of things do you get up to doing that? Just a brief outline of who we actually are. We are actually a charity called Cornwall Search Dogs. And we were set up in 2020 by five ex-members of Mountain Rescue, two of them being retired police officers, me being one of those police officers um, who are dog handlers. We were actually training our own dogs to trail for our own amusement to a degree, using scent discrimination. This method is used widely throughout the world's search and rescue organizations and involves the dog taking the scent of the missing quarry or species or person and following only that scent to the exclusion of any spurious scent to the target. Because scent is like a fingerprint. It is unique to that person or that quarry. And the dog, with its superior nasal capacity or scenting capacity, can sort of take this in and biologically follow that at the expense of any other scent. So it, it basically provides a targeted response and has proven very effective to either give a direction of travel, an area containment, or sometimes directly to the missing quarry. At the moment, we've got four operational dogs covering the Duchy of Cornwall with four more handlers and dogs being trained. Now, currently, although we always train on what we call MISPAs, missing people, on training days, which we train once, uh, once a week on a Sunday, uh, which is about an eight-hour day, our main response is to missing dogs, missing and lost dogs within the Duchy. Because we realized when we were setting up this charity that no one else provides a service of missing or lost dogs within Cornwall. And we have had tremendous success and it is a very rewarding work when you can either find a dog or so that your dog's, you know, gone that way, just leapfrog across and they find the dog like three miles in that direction. We're quite busy for a small team. We're on average of about four call outs a month requiring dogs being deployed with other services such as just general advice we have with the use of a thermal imager and we also liaise with with other groups as well you say about the commitment of a scat detection dog i mean it takes generally about two years for volunteers and their dogs to reach the required standard for us to consider they be operational to reach operational um, standards. They have exams, both theory and practical, to get through. And um, they cover the theory of scent and all sorts of stuff, really. So it's not just a question of, you know, you turning up with your dog and seeing if it can follow something. It's a systematic training schedule. 
which we put together. And we really are quite a professional team of dedicated people. The dogs that you use, can they ever really be pets in the conventional sense? Or Absolutely. Are they, oh, they are. So they're working dogs, but you can actually have them in the house. Absolutely. They are pets first and foremost. Whereas the other way around with the police dogs, they were working dogs first and foremost. But with the police dogs, they were colleagues. But with these dogs, we've got two German shepherds. I've got a what I call a Celtic Spaniel, which is a cross between a Welsh and a Brittany Spaniel. Another one of our teams, she's got a Labrador and another couple of Spaniels. But they are very much 100% pets. Oh, fair enough then. They have a good life because they have plenty of enrichment and plenty of exercise and nice, um, Absolutely. nice family atmosphere as well. Yeah. Now, in your experience, what's the longest period you've had, uh, you've recovered a, a lost dog? You know, how, how long has a dog been out lost before you've actually recovered it? Well, I can relate to a personal experience of mine a few months ago when a lady phoned up from a farm in remote Cornwall to say she'd lost, she'd been out with three dogs. Two had run off, and could we help? This was probably about two days after the dogs had gone missing. So, okay, I turn up, and I get my dog out, and we need a scent article or an area where the scent was last seen. It could be a scent pool from where the dog was last sitting, or it could be a a bed or a collar or something like this, but something containing the scent of that particular dog. Although, if it is bedding, and say the three dogs have been sleeping on it, we can scent discriminate the dog out that's still there, if you know what I mean. So the dog can smell all three scents. And because they're individual, the dog thinks, well, okay, dog number A is here. So I'm looking for dog B and C. So off he does and does that, if that makes sense. So we had a trail from where the dogs split and ran off, one jumping over a hedge, two running parallel to a hedge, like handwriting a hedge. Now, the dog that ran over the hedge had come back. So we were on the right trail, or so we realized, and we went about, I imagine, a mile or so, something like that, through woodland, and we came to what I thought at first was a rabbit warren. My dog suddenly, again, became very animated, and the proximity indicators were saying, I think those dogs are in this, what I thought was a rabbit warren. So I called the lady over and we've got um, a boroscope, which we pushed into the rabbit warren. It wasn't long enough. So I said, basically, I am thinking that your dogs are in here. So I would place a watch on these rabbit warrens and you know, check where all the holes are, where all the entrances, exits are. And two days later, these dogs popped out. And they were, they were saved, all down to the fact that my dog had trailed from the place last seen to this rabbit warren, which actually did turn out to be a badger set. So we were actually quite glad that we didn't do anything because it would have been illegal, obviously. So we were a bit switched on there. And just to put a sentinel there to make sure that if the dogs came out, and sure enough, yeah, we think what had happened is that they were terriers, as luck would have it. They dashed into this, we know now as a badger set. They'd got stuck. They'd lost weight and dehydrated after about two days and were able to get themselves back out again. But they were fine. So those dogs were missing four days. But we very regularly are able to trail for up to two to three days, dependent on weather circumstances, because weather obviously affects scent. 
it degrades it very, very quickly with ultraviolet in the sunlight. Rain washes it away and stuff like that. Do you ever find that a dog has got a missing dog that's been out for a while has gone a bit feral and becomes more stealthy than they normally are? And does that sort of add to the complication? Yeah, that is a, a known phenomenon that happens. With all dogs, it happens, but no one can really, as far as I'm aware, put a finger on when it happens. It could happen quite quickly. It could happen four or five days later. No one can put a definitive answer to that one, not that I found anyway. And basically, the, the dog reverts back to its natural abilities, and it regards people even the owners that's perhaps lived with for 10 years or more and who have fed it and watered it and played with it, it regards them as their enemy. And they will avoid them at all costs. And they will stay silent. They will avoid them. And they just look at people as if they are, well, they use the fight or flight and they'd sooner flight. So that is a big problem with us. And we try and educate the public. But when you go out looking for a lost dog do not stand in a field and shout you know um fido fido where are you and all that because you'll more than likely have the opposite effect that is very very true that dogs do suffer with this going feral if you like so the longer it's taking to find one the more challenging it's going to become absolutely so it is more challenging, actually, usually to try and find a dog that's gone missing than it is a human. The very principle is that humans, there are different ways that humans go, like somebody with Alzheimer's, say, goes in a straight line. Suicidals will go up high with an intention of ending their life, maybe. You have some sort of parallels that you can draw on to figure out your search. But when we go out searching, we, we listen to get all the intelligence in and we look at the maps of where they've last been sighted and then carve that up and see where we can trail to and stuff like that. So it, it is actually quite scientific. It's just not a question of going out with your dog and covering vast tracts of area. And because we're targeted searching with the, with the scent discrimination, we are quite successful at it, really. If that makes sense. What motivates your dogs? Just the fact that it's it's actually an exciting part of their mission in life, or do they do they need rewarding? Yeah, absolutely, they, they reward. What we use is uh, what my spaniel likes, Tegan. She is very partial to cheese, and she loves Primula cheese. We call it a high value reward, and it's something that she doesn't get at home, and it's something that she only gets when she's found the person. And she very often finds that person and that person rewards the dog with lots of praise, lots of cheese. And she is as happy as Larry. She really is. Uh, if I, this is how we used to train the police dogs as well. It was all with done with a high value reward. But in those days, it used to be a ball or a Kong or something like that. But the most important thing is that if you have been on a, a negative trail, then you must also set up where the dog will win by putting in a simple trail that the dog wins so you're not demotivating the dog and that you will then get a reward for doing a short trail of 50 meters or so or something like that where the dog can quite easily find somebody and they get a reward so that, you, that you're not putting them away thinking, well, I didn't find anyone, I didn't get my cheese and you are starting to detrain them. So 
you need to be aware of that as well. Yes, you've got to contrive something for them. Yeah, for sure. That's a good way of putting it. At the outset of this um, segment, you mentioned the Duchy of Cornwall. That's just another term for what some people understand as the County of Cornwall, yeah? Yes, indeed it is. We are governed, if you like, for want of a better word, by who is now King Charles and now is Prince William. He's our duchy, he's our duke now, and basically Cornwall is governed by a duke. It's the simplest way to do it. It's a historical title, and that's pretty much it, really, without getting into too much detail. Cornwall search dogs cover the entire area of Cornwall, from the Tamer all the way down to all, all four points of the compass down. Well, how good to hear about that work in Cornwall. Thank you ever so much for that extra snippet. And I guess last sort of related question on the dog side of things, that if a dog handler was um, requested to redeploy a dog onto scenting a cat or or scat detecting work, that would be easy to do, relatively straightforward to do, because it's the dog and the dog handler have got the sort of skill sets and they just need to sort of tweak it for, for the required activity. Or do you think it is a bit specialist? And, and do you think that actually tracking something like a big cat could be stressful for a dog? I think it would be quite easy to to tweak, as you put it, a trained dog um, to do that and in fact even incorporate it into what the dog does in its original role i mean like police dogs the general purpose police dog he does tracking he does man work he does property searching he does building searching and they're all different areas of training but they've all got the one thing in common to find the target as far as finding people volunteering to do it I would think that would be quite difficult because it's a lot of hard work, I would have thought, for very, very occasional um, deployments, maybe. But but I suppose if you used it not to the point of view of finding the, the panther or the, the mountain lion or whatever, but if to find evidence to validate the sightings, that would probably be as important, really. Yes. And if you found the scat, if you found the, the poo, of course, it ta- it can then give you the DNA result that you can actually verify that it was a black leopard or a, a mountain lion. It would validate any claims that I have just seen a, a panther or a lion or a leopard or whatever. So I, I think there is definitely the options worth considering. I mean, I'm aware that certain organisations have got scat detection dogs for my pine martins and other endangered species. I mean... Would they be interested, because they work for big companies, don't they, to clear areas for development, et cetera, I guess? Yes. But the trouble is you, you do it that way and you're in for a hefty, hefty bill. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer to the whole question really simplistically is a resounding yes, as we all know how successful dogs are and, and how they are good at finding quarry, whatever that quarry be, whether it be scats or it be an actual species. I mean, if it was, as I say, if it was specially trained, it would add credence to the sightings and also the likelihood would give direction of travel and a containment context. So it would be a marvellous idea. Um, I'd be fully for it. Yeah, well, think on it. And uh, any listeners who want to sort of get in touch, uh, who are listening in with views and tips and ideas can maybe get in touch as well. It's something we'll give further thought to. It's very good that you've 
helped us think it through, John, with your experience, because it's been on my mind. I think it is just a resource issue. It's, it's having somebody who's dedicated uh, who's got, uh, and got enough time to allocate to it unless you can have a budget for deploying, redeploying one that's available commercially, as it were. Yeah, and then you start talking megabucks, I imagine. If you start bean counting, as I to use that horrible word, if you start to figure out what it actually costs to train these dogs, um, it's quite horrendous, really. And you, only, you, you, you suddenly realise that, wow, that's got a lot of money that I just spent. John, it's very good of you to spend this time with us. I know that you're suffering with a, with a bit of a cough at the moment, so I think yes, we'll stand you down now. But very good to, to hear you supplement Bob's experience from, from Warwickshire. And good luck with all the work in Cornwall. And thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed talking today and would be very interested to see how or to hear how things develop. OK, well, hopefully keep in touch, John. Yeah, for sure. Thanks ever so much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. Cheers, Rick. Thank you very much. Okay, on the website, under references and links for this episode, you can see a photo of Russ, the hero Alsatian police dog that John mentioned from back in 2003. And one crucial thing I failed to pick up on during the conversations with Bob and John is the coincidence in their sighting locations, because they both mentioned they were close to the village of Piccadilly, and they genuinely didn't know of each other's sightings when they contacted me as we heard. It's so difficult to know if there was a connection in the cat scene, because of the cat's collar witnessed by Bob, so I think this will remain another puzzle, like so much of the hidden realm of our cats. And just a quick follow-up to our last episode with Don and the thermal camera footage in Derbyshire. Because in late October I received a report of a big cat resembling a tan-coloured puma just two miles from Don's filming area of the cat on the wall. And that one was seen at the end of September, even though I got the report in late October. If you remember, we weren't sure of the actual colour of Don's cat subject because the thermal camera shows the animal's body heat in whatever colour the camera is set to. Don used black sometimes and white sometimes. So perhaps this recent close-by report suggests that the cat in our footage from episode 84 is most likely a puma. Don continues on the case and will get updates if he makes more progress. In honour of Don's wall-walking cat, We have a limerick from Don to read out, so here we go. Over a metre in length, the cat was immense. It was mousing at night, with the dark so intense. The cat roaming free was so enchanting to see. Thermal cameras are a must for these beasts to be sussed. So, many thanks for that one, Don. And that cues a final reminder of our call for poems and limericks. We've extended the deadline a bit, so 15th of November will be the new cut-off point. To keep the judging simple to manage, some of the admin coordinators of the Big Cat Sightings Facebook groups are going to look at the entries, so a big thanks to them for their interest, and we'll read out the winners in episodes in December or January, depending on how episodes fall, and all the entries will get read out in the outro part of future episodes next year. All of the entries will also be on the website over Christmas time as well if you want to read them there. A big thanks to those of you who've emailed a contribution already, but we'd still like some more. 
so please do send us something if you can. Just email your Big Cat poem or limerick to rick at bigcatconversations.com. And you could win a Big Cat Conversations t-shirt and some branded Big Cat food and drink items. Now, for those of you who use TikTok, well, we're not always very modern here on the podcast for various reasons, but I'm pleased to mention that we have now started a TikTok account. So the podcast has a presence on TikTok. That involves very short clips and quotes selected from some of our episodes, so those are appearing with some of the TikTok snippets that we're releasing. And a warm welcome to new listeners who've recently joined us through TikTok. Hope you're finding it all useful. And a big thanks to Owen, and especially to James, who are running our TikTok side of things. And there are more sightings reports coming in from that too. So it does open up a new window on the world of big cat reports and people's interest in the topic. Righto, we are signing off now. So thanks again to our guests Bob and John, and thank you everyone for listening. Thanks too for the recent kind comments on the Apple Podcasts reviews page. We're back soon with Paul MacDonald for a Scotland update with sightings reports and an overview of things happening across Scotland. And also coming up is a guest from British Columbia. His family have known of Big Cat reports back in Britain, which we'll hear about. And he's a British listener living in Canada, and he's had a close encounter with a puma when out hiking in the local area. So we'll discuss that with him, along with the lessons he thinks it has for us here. So all that and more is coming soon. Take care, everyone, and bye for now.